really wants is that we are people who don't tear one another down, but we're people who build one another up. You got to ask yourself, are you somebody who builds people up or are you somebody who tears people down? Are you somebody who in the way that you live and move through this world, that you are helping strengthen people or you're the kind of person who is actually diminishing people by tearing them down? What God really wants is for his people to be a place where people get built up. How do we interact with people in this world? Do we tear them down so that we can get ahead? Or do we build them up, putting their success above our own? In today's message, Pastor Daniel encourages us to strive to build others up. God's intentions are always to benefit us, to show us His love and grace. When we follow Him, we too will want to show love and grace to those around us. Today's message is meant for mature audiences. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, with his continuing study called More Random Laws. Now, in verse 5, look at what happens. It says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn son, which she bears, will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if a man does not want to take... I'll stop there and I'll explain this. Because you read this and you're like, what? Okay, so this is what is called the leverate marriage. And literally the word levir in the Latin, it means the firstborn. So let me explain this to you. So in that culture, the... Continuance of the family line was very, very important. So if you have a brother, the oldest brother, right? Let's say he gets married, right? But he doesn't have a male offspring, then his name, his familial line ends right there. So if an older brother is married and he dies without an offspring, it was the responsibility of the next younger brother to marry his older brother's wife and bear children and the firstborn children of the union of the wife with the next younger brother is actually considered the older brother's offspring. Now, I know that sounds kind of crazy and you start thinking about the dynamic. I mean, you can imagine if you were like a younger brother and your older brother was getting married, you're like kind of checking out his wife. Like, you know, things, hope if things, if things go good, everything will be fine. But if things don't go good, I need to know what's going on here. And so, I mean, we'll just be real about it. I mean, just try and put yourself in that situation. Now you might say, well, what about the women? Now you have to remember, this was not 21st century America. This was about caring for women when a spouse died, when a wife, because... See, all these things go together because you had families that were given land by allotment. And unlike today where it's like you grow up in your parents' house and you move out and get your own house. In that day, you lived in your parents' house and you built a little house on your parents' house and your parents' property was your property. Their business was your business. Not like today you just kind of choose your own adventure. That's not the way it was. That's a more recent development. Really, and only a more recent development in the last four or 500 years. 
right? But for a long time, families stayed together. All the families were together. And so what would go on is that if an older brother died without bearing offspring, then that woman would have to leave the family that she's now a part of and be married to somebody else. And what does this mean for inheritance laws and all these things? So it was a way to protect women who didn't have male offsprings and lost their husband. Now there is a built-in caring for them mechanism so that she would have family and then she can raise up offspring and for that firstborn son because he would receive a double portion of his father's inheritance. That son now takes that place. So we read about this in, of course, the account as sordid as it is, Genesis 38, the affair of Judah with Tamar. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you can read it. It's like so good. It'd be like a soap opera, you know? But there was a woman, Tamar, she was married to Judah's oldest son, and then the son died, then the next son, and then that son died, and then the third son, the third son was like, man, everyone's dying with this girl. I don't want to have anything to do with it, you know? And then a whole bunch of stuff went on. I don't want to get into it right now, but it's quite sordid, you know? And, um, but we read about this idea of this levirate marriage there. You also read about it in the book of Ruth. I just recently read through the book of Ruth in my own devotional time. Ruth, when she died, when she went back to Jerusalem, because Naomi's son, who was Ruth's husband, had passed away, they were vulnerable. And so Boaz, who is the male in that story, he performs the rite of the Leverite marriage for Ruth. And their offspring, Boaz and Ruth, is in the lineage, the genealogy of Jesus. And so all these things play on through the Bible. So it explains that God's heart is that the name of the deceased brother won't be blotted out from Israel. God wants to retain the family name. Now, I think it's important because we don't really think about the family name too much anymore. It's like our culture here in America has kind of lost this idea of my family name, my family line. But maybe it's something that we need to regain again. Because we know from the scriptures that the family, a husband and a wife and their offspring, it's God's primary plan for discipleship. We know that in our culture, the family is much maligned. That at this point, the vast majority of people are growing up in families that we can call broken families or blended families. And so I think as followers of Jesus, we need to make commitment to the art of the family, the way God intended it. Now, again, if you have history and backgrounds, listen, there's grace and there's no condemnation in Christ. But if you're here today and you're single, you want to search for that one person who you're going to spend the rest of it. And you got to grind through all the good times and the bad times. And if you have kids, then you're definitely going to have to grind through all that stuff, you know? But you make that commitment and you hang on as best as you can and you work for that. And it's such an important reality because the name of a family is important. I have it with my kids now. We talk about things and they're like, well, so-and-so. I'm like, well, listen, your last name is Fusco. So that's it, my kids. And people can do whatever they want to do, but you're a Fusco. This is who we are. And I talk to my kids about that stuff. Why? Because I care about what my kids are doing. I want my kids to be different than other kids. You know, and so me and Lynn have decided we're going to talk to our kids that way. Other kids may do that, but you're a Fusco. We're not like that. We want to do this and this and this because we want our family name and our offspring and our kids' kids, Lord willing, if the Lord tarries and grandkids and great-grandkids and stuff, we want them all to be very much the way God would intend them to be. 
And so make sure we make those commitments to your family name and make those investments in your family in order that your family would have a good testimony. So now what happens? And look what it says in verse 7. But if a man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brothers. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. <laughs> this is fun, right? Okay, what is this all about? So you can imagine that in certain situations, the next oldest brother is like, well, I don't want to raise up offspring for my brother because I want the place of preeminence. I don't want my son or my brother's son, who's mine, to get that place of primacy as the eldest son, the next in line. So I'm not going to do it. Now we have somebody who is not willing to conform to God's design for their culture. And so what happens? Now the woman who is not being taken care of, now she is exceedingly vulnerable in that culture. She goes to the elders at the gates of the city. Now, in every town, there were the elders who sat at the city gates. It was almost like a form of authority there. They would make decisions. They would oversee the way things worked because they were the elders, and their job was to oversee and make sure everybody was doing the right things, much like within the people of God. The idea of the elders, those mature men in the church who their job was to look out for the church and look out for the spiritual health of the church. It says that in the Bible that he who desires the office of an elder desires a good thing. I tell every guy I talk to, I'm like, you should be growing that you would be an elder in this place. That you'd be the kind of person who looks out for the spiritual well-being of the Crossroads family. Right? And so in that culture, there we go. And the woman would go and she would say, listen, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. So first the woman goes, because she's already tried to get this thing worked out. She goes to the elders and says, he's not going to take care of it. Right? And what do the elders do? They call him and they say, so what's up? What are you doing? Right? And they seek to persuade this young man to honor the life of his older brother, God's desire not to see his older brother's name blotted out from the children of Israel, and will seek to convince him. But if the guy won't, then you have this ritual that the brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders. So now this is something that's going on formally before the leaders of the community. They remove his sandal from his foot, you spit in his face, and you answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. Now, you read that, and doesn't that sound kind of harsh? So what's the removing of the sandals? That was a sign in that culture of a strong disapproval. Of course, you have in the Bible, you should take off your shoes. This is hallowed ground. But in this case, it was a sign of disapproval. And obviously, the spitting in the face. What this guy is doing is so deeply disrespectful to God and to the community that this woman should spit in his face. And then she says, this sentence to him, 
You know, so shall it be done to the man who shall not build up his brother's house. And in verse 10, and his name shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal removed. Now, I'm here to tell you, that was not like a term of endearment. The idea here is that society yields the ability to put social pressure on people in order to ensure conformity. Now, that sounds a little shocking, doesn't it? But guess what? Our day and age shows that society places a whole lot of pressure on people to force conformity. I think the election showed that in a way where every poll said Trump's not going to win. And then all these people said they wouldn't vote for Trump, but a lot of them did. Why? Because there was so much social pressure I'm not saying I agree with the vote or not. That's a whole other discussion. But there's so much social pressure and, oh, you're a hater, you're a bigot, you're this. And the people don't want to say it, but deep down they really want to vote for the guy. And so either way, society yields and puts pressure on individuals. Nobody can get away from it. But I want you to notice God's heart in this because notice the pressure is to this. For he who will not build up his brother's house. I love this stuff. Within the people of God, we should put pressure on one another to make sure that we are building one another up. The Bible calls this edification. See, what God really wants is that our lives in self-sacrificial service to the Lord, that we build people up, that we, edification, we help fortify their lives in Christ. See, what God really wants is that we are people who don't tear one another down, but we are people who build one another up. You got to ask yourself, are you somebody who builds people up or are you somebody who tears people down? Are you somebody who in the way that you live and move through this world, that you are helping strengthen people or you're the kind of person who is actually diminishing people by tearing them down? What God really wants is for his people to be a place where people get built up. He wants us to build one another's houses, to join him in being vehicles for the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God to be transferred from person to person. Be somebody who builds people up. Now, listen, when I say that, I realize that all of us were probably like, oh, man, I've torn this person down and I got this thing. And a lot of times even... It's, it's often very, a lot easier to build people up, people who you're not married to, who you don't live with every day, than it is for people who you see all the time because familiarity brings contempt and you have water under the bridge. But if there are people right now in your heart like, I'm not doing a good job building them up, I would encourage you just to simply go and apologize. Just say, hey, I haven't done a good job of building you up and I want to start and forgive me for the ways that I failed. You ask for forgiveness and you can't go back and redo this morning but you do have responsibility for today. What are you doing to build people up? And I want to encourage you to proactively find ways to build people up. Like, when was the last time before you went into work, you said, Lord, how can I be a blessing to everybody I work with? What small things can I do to go that extra mile with them? Not because I have to, but because I could, to be a blessing. How can I build somebody up. See, that's what God's interested in. And the Leverite marriage was both a way to protect women who would have been vulnerable, being spouseless and childless, no one to take care of them. It wasn't 21st century America where you just go get a job. It's a whole different culture. 
So God was concerned for the vulnerability of a woman in this situation, and God is very concerned that we build up one another. And I love this. He didn't build up his brother's house. I love the family language of the Bible. That's why we like to sit here at Crossroads, but because Jesus is real, we're a family of faith. Because we call God our father. In a sense, Jesus is our brother. We're brothers and sisters, you know? And so we want to think of ourselves as family. And so each person is part of your family. And so be intentional about seeking to build up your brother's house. And in the ways that you can, take those steps. Help people. Because that's who God wants us to be. Self-sacrificial service. And so that's kind of the Leverite marriage. And so in verse 11, we start kind of picking up some other random laws. Now, I want to be honest. I'm going to read to you verses 11 and 12. I'll read it to you. I'm going to tell you a little story about this. So look at what it says. When we read this, all of you are going to be super happy that you're not me. It says, if two men fight together and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of the one attacking him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the genitals... Then you shall cut off her hand, your eye shall not pity her. (laughs) So I'll be honest with you. So I was preparing this text many weeks ago, and I read this, and I went into our church staff meeting. I said, okay, I need to read a scripture to you all, because I just wanted to read it out loud in front of the church staff so I can get comfortable with this whole story. (laughs) So in my notes, I just wrote this in capital letters. So what is this all about? Okay. So what you have is you have these two guys and they start fighting, they start scrapping, right? And we don't know why, but we know that for one of them, they're married. And if this woman sees her husband being attacked and she intervenes and her way of intervening is to grab the attacker by his junk, you know, it's the right way to say it, that you should cut off her hand. It's a little provocative, isn't it? Like the whole thing. So here's the thing. Because you would say, so she's just trying to help her man. But the idea here is, when you think about what's going on here, out of all the things she could do, why is she grabbing him by the genitals? Because she wants to scar him for life. The grabbing in the midst of a fight, the idea here is the woman is trying to emasculate the man. And what's going on is the reason the punishment for that action is that she loses her hand, and it says, your eyes should not pity her is because her response to what is going on is so far outside of the scope of what is happening. Why should a man lose the ability to have offspring because he's having fisticuffs with another person? See, this has been radically escalated. Now, I don't know if this was something that went on kind of common in that culture. I couldn't, I was reading and trying to see, is there common stories of this? I couldn't find many. But the idea was that the woman's response to what was going on was such a huge escalation that she deserved punishment for it. Because God's way of justice, I mean, in the most basic sense, justice is you get what you deserve. So the idea in like the Code of Hammurabi, which we also get in the New Testament, that an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, you know, all these things. Like, and how many of you have seen the bumper sticker, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind? You know what the problem with that? If you actually think through it, it's because when Gandhi said it, he didn't actually understand why those laws were in. See, those laws are there not to say that the punishment for an eye, it was a law against escalation. Because God knows the heart of fallen humanity, right? Someone bothers you, right? Like you guys are sitting there and you're talking and someone says something you don't like, right? 
Then you start to plot how you can undermine them. They just said something you didn't like, but before you know it, you're taking the thing to the next level and the next level and the next level. And there's been all these movies about that. I remember for those of you who were kids of the 80s, you know, The War of the Roses with Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner, one of like the nine movies those guys were in together, you know? And then you have Mr. and Mrs. Smith. You fast forward it to the early 2000s where something goes on and it just gets worse and worse and it escalates and it escalates and it escalates. You know, and so the laws of justice that the punishment should fit the crime, it was designed to curtail the fallenness of humanity in escalation. And in this situation, this woman's actions in seeking to protect her husband was such a radical escalation from what could have been done to fix this situation that the escalation was so provocative that punishment was due to the woman. Does that make sense? So then here's the question, because we all know what it's like to be in situations where we're escalating a situation. See, because Jesus is a peacemaker, he wants us to de-escalate situations. I know we sometimes we feel, well, they owe me. Well, really? God doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us grace when we deserve judgment. It is within our power and within our freedom in Christ to de-escalate situations. Are you the kind of person who, it's always a tit for a tat. It's always, oh, well, you did this, one would do this, plus some. It's the law of the proportioned response. What about us choosing to say, my response is not going to be tit for tat or escalating it. I'm going to respond in a way that de-escalates the situation. And that's what really this is all about here. See, this woman, in seeking to help her husband, not only is it indecent, it's a radical, for a fight, why should a guy lose the opportunity to be able to continue his family line? Is that a proper response? According to the Bible, the answer is no. It's not a proper response. So I think the call for us is that we need to make sure that however we respond to things, we respond with appropriateness given what it is, and we seek to de-escalate every situation rather than always take it to the next level. Jesus is real. Today's message dealt with some mature themes that may have been a bit uncomfortable. As Pastor Daniel is taking us verse by verse through the Bible, it was inevitable that we'd come upon them. God intended for us to study these verses, however, and learn the heart behind them. As we go through life, we need to respond appropriately to situations that arise and strive to build each other up whenever possible. I want to thank you so much for listening to the Jesus is Real program. And I realize that there are many of you, you're not a born again follower of Jesus. You've never put your faith and trust in Jesus. But as you've been listening, you've been saying to yourself, I want to begin to follow Jesus. I want to help you do that right now. We're going to pray a simple prayer that just acknowledges who Jesus is in your life. So if that's you, if you're saying yes to Jesus for the very first time, pray this prayer with me. Say, Jesus, I'm giving you my life. Thank you for saving me. I believe in you, your life, your death on the cross, and your resurrection. Forgive me of my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And I ask it in Jesus' name. And we all said together, amen. For those of you who just received Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, I'm so excited for you. I want to know that you did it, though, because I want to help you take your next steps with him. So pull out your mobile phone, text the word SAVED to 51400, S-A-V-E-D, 
to 51400. And my team will get in touch with you. We want to get some more resources in your hands to help you on this journey. Now, my team, we want to share some stuff with you, so don't go anywhere. Thanks, Pastor Daniel. You know, the Bible says that when one person comes to Jesus, the angels in heaven rejoice. And we rejoice with them today if you just prayed that prayer with Pastor Daniel. Again, to receive some resources that are going to help you in this new journey with Jesus, take out your mobile phone right now and text the word SAVED, S-A-V-E-D, to 51400. Make sure to tune in again as Pastor Daniel reminds us that when God says to do something, we need to do it. God had many specific instructions for how the people of Israel were to live and how these blueprints made them stand out from the world around them. This included doing things that they may not have understood, but that would benefit them for years to come. There's more from Pastor Daniel's series called Blueprints. Please glance at the clock right now and make plans to join us again for another edition of Jesus is Real Radio.